Welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite podcast listening platforms. What you're about to hear is episode 18, Woman Inherits the Earth, which originally aired in 2017. In this episode, we explore one of the most universal narrative conflicts, man versus nature, through the 90s classic, Jurassic Park. So hop in the time machine with us and enjoy episode 18, Woman Inherits the Earth. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. So today I was reminded of the awesome, tremendous, and all-breaking beauty, majesty, and power of Mother Nature. How so? I watched a video on the internet of a really happy sloth slowly and succulently eating a carrot, and it was the greatest fucking thing I've ever seen. I thought you were going to mention yesterday's massive hailstorm that punched a hole in my umbrella. No, I got caught in that as well. No, it's the sloth that really humbled me. And folks, just Google sloth videos. If you just want to like smile and feel great about the universe and be reminded that, you know, there are such amazing, cool creatures like sloths. Ah, they're so awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think sloth videos are the, the purest source of joy I've ever encountered. Yeah, they're like... They're like little children, but you don't have to like teach them morality or manners or anything. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, if you just had kids and you could play with them, you didn't have to teach them things. That sounds like animals. That's pets. Oh, yeah. Pets are awesome. <laughs> I love pets. Let me tell you, all animals. So got me thinking, you know, we are always searching for the universal, you know, elements of storytelling. Yeah. And there's the age-old trope of, you know, you have to have a conflict that's based upon something. Yeah. I don't know. Do you know who came up? You know where I'm going. I see by your smile. I know exactly where you're going because this is exactly where I was going to go. Yeah. The, there can only be so many potential conflicts. And I don't know what genius uh, originated this thought. Yeah. I actually don't know where to attribute this, but I... It wasn't us. But the... The classic conflicts are, of course, man versus man. So, uh, you know, go back to episode one, villainy, and you can hear about man versus man conflict. Yep. We've got man versus machines. You can go back to don't disconnect me, bra. Hear about man versus machine. Yeah, but we haven't talked about. And you can also have man versus himself, or you can go back to several of our episodes and yeah, hear about, about that. People chasing and fighting their own demons. But what did we leave out? Man versus nature. It's a big hole in in the topics that we have addressed and we have discussed that it's absolutely part of the narrative of storytelling man versus nature uh, if you want i can give a little historical please do continuity to that so yeah. like, i mentioned seeing a sloth and how amazing and cute and warm and fuzzy that made me feel you mentioned a storm and it was annoying historically speaking the natural world has existed 
amongst the society of humans as an existential threat. That's uh, part of why going out into the forest is dangerous. Um, Walking around and saying hi to strangers is dangerous. When you are out in the unknown, the natural world can actually be dangerous. And just imagine if you took a, you know, someone who lives in South Philadelphia and such as myself and plopped me out in the middle of nowhere, I probably wouldn't survive very long. Right. And I think that's an interesting context that you're bringing to this. And I would argue that the man versus nature conflict uh, in storytelling has evolved over time in terms of uh, the way it's constructed and the way it's projected. Whereas, you know, we could go back to Aesop, which we've talked about before with the boy who cried wolf and fables about, you know, big bad wolves blowing in houses and eating little girls and their grandmothers uh, and a very simple version of that narrative uh, to, you know, where I imagine things really changed around the Industrial Revolution and around times when we started learning how to beat the elements and to beat nature in our own spaces. So I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I can imagine storytelling evolved quite a bit with the invention of the air conditioner. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was reading an article that apparently there is a huge risk of Antarctica fissuring in half. And if that happens, uh, the huge ecological effect that that would have on the entire planet, namely most coasts on the planet would be underwater. Um, And this is due in no small part to the rising temperatures of the Earth and Antarctica being made primarily of ice Um, Granted, I read one article, so I don't pretend to be an expert. It got me kicking on what are the modern narratives of man versus nature? Where are we going in this story and what role does it have? And in like all things, I looked to pop culture and to our relative recent history and uh, started scratching the surface. And I thought, what better movie to tackle than Jurassic Park? Yep. And to be fair, I don't want to tackle, unless there's time at the end, <clears throat> all of the sequels, prequels, reboots, whatever. No. I'm talking about Steven Spielberg's 1993, based off of Michael Crichton's book, Jurassic Park, as one of the quintessential man versus nature narratives. So And modern man versus nature narratives. And done in a, just, you know, two people that I admire highly for their storytelling prowess. Michael Crichton, um, probably my favorite pulp fiction writer. Yeah, he's also the mind behind Westworld, of course. Yeah, uh, just so many great things, so many books and so many things that have turned into TV and film that he's done. So I highly respect him. I think, is he a great writer like Dickens? No, but man, you know, if you want to sit on a beach and read a great book, you bring a Michael Crichton. He had stories. Um, You know, and then uh, Steven Spielberg, who I think is the 80s and 90s wizard of directors. I mean, if you were going to take uh, an idea and turn it into a pop culture phenomenon at that time, you called Steven Spielberg. Right. And they combined it, combined it. They combined. I don't know. What's the right word here? Combined. They combined their, their forces. They combined their forces to make this movie, which we recently rewatched. And if you haven't seen it, you can rent it on iTunes for like four bucks or Amazon. If you torrent things, I don't condone it. But if you do torrent it, watch that movie. It holds up tremendously. Yeah. And even if you saw it as a kid, I would recommend going back and rewatching because it holds a lot more meaning and power when you watch it as an adult. Uh, and you can really understand the intellectual intellectual arguments that are being made in this film. And it, it lends so much more... Uh, just so much more meaning to be able to add that to the awesome T-Rexes, you know, kicking people off cliffs. And thinking about what we're currently facing with global climate change. And I know there are a few climate change deniers out there, but you know, you're, you're a fucking idiot if you are, and I hate to be rude, but yeah, stop listening to our podcast. Yeah. If you think global warming's not happening and global climate change, change isn't happening and isn't related to carbon emissions, you're just not well-informed or choose not to be. Right. But, you know, from the context of that's happening, 
and the new man versus nature narrative that we're seeing, it was interesting watching uh, Jurassic Park knowing what we know now, and you couldn't help feel like there are some lessons to be gleamed from Jurassic Park that we have yet to put into place when we look at our technology, our effect on the world, the things that we're doing, um, and I really can't wait to get into it. So let's do it. Let's yeah. get in. Long, long intro, long intro, but we're going to be, we're going to be discussing Jurassic Park. Let's do it. Let, you know what, Laurel, kick us off. Cause I just totally like word vomited You're all fine. over the intro. You're fine. So first moments of Jurassic Park, if you remember the, the first scene, we hear a rustling in the trees and we see men with weapons pointed at, uh, at the trees that are rustling and some very predatory references. Um, and it is, it's a clear line to hunters in the woods or a, a you know snow white in the woods and sees a pair of pair of eyes you know gazing at her through the forest trees uh it's that clear predatory moment of fear before nature and the unknown but what's behind those trees is actually a cage uh containing velociraptors right which we don't know in the beginning right But But Steven Spielberg recreates this feeling for us of, you know, classic fairy tales and classic stories of nature and horror uh, by showing us something that is typically associated with a natural predator and ends up being the most unnatural predator of all. Uh, And so this immediately sets up for us that we are in a man versus nature story, but it's not the kind of man versus nature that we thought. So where do we go from here? Oh man, I, there was so much in that statement. You want to move on. Okay. I wanted to, to pick that apart a little bit because there was so much to what you just said, but okay, we'll move on. Well, I think that sets the scene for us really for mm-hmm. what we're about to see. And, uh, just to, you know, remind you of what happened in this amazing movie. Uh, we then meet our heroes who are at an archeological dig and who are, you know, digging up the bones of dinosaurs, and their names are Alan Grant and Ellie something. Dr. They're, Ellie. They're played by uh, Sam Neill and Laura Dern, who are wonderful actors. The, the, the two top in the story, the two top paleontologists, and uh, Ellie is, she's into ancient plants, a paleontologist. She's like a paleobotanist. Yeah, thank you, paleobotanist. Uh, yeah, so she is. Uh, she has a deeper understanding of ecosystems and uh, botanical elements of ancient society, or not societies, but ancient uh, creatures and yeah. I would say whatever m- more than ancient. Ancient usually yeah, applies like, to humans, like millions of years yeah, ago. Jurassic, if you yeah. will, um, Neolithic, Jurassic. I don't know all my periods. Yeah. Uh, and then Sam Neill, of course, is an expert in uh, in dinosaurs themselves, has a philosophy that dinosaurs didn't really die out. They didn't really go extinct. Many of them uh, evolved and became birds. And he has some scientific evidence for this and has written a few books. So he's pretty well known for this theory. And one of the first things we see is this skeptical little asshole kid coming up and being like, I don't think that's real. Looks like a turkey to me. Yeah. And uh, Sam Neill, just awful, awful oh, Alan Grant. Can we, can we, can we pause? Your Sam Neill is who? Alan Grant. I just said it. Oh, okay. I, yeah. Can we just call him Alan Grant? Because yes, I don't I'm know sorry. who Sam Neill is. No, no, it's fine. I just didn't know and I was confused. Okay. Um, Alan Grant, you know, pulls this horrible thing where he scares the crap out of the kid. But he does this to illustrate a point in showing him the uh, just the power of nature and the the fear and respect that he should have for nature, no matter how distant it feels to him. What was that kid doing on that dig site, by the way? Um, was he somebody's kid? I can only imagine there was someone that was just like, oh, Dr. Grant, I got to bring my kid to work today. I couldn't find a sitter. And he's an asshole, by the way. And he's hanging out in the desert. Right. And of course, Grant hates kids. Right. Um you're, can I, uh, so going back to that original scene, I think there's an important thematic uh, note that we see there, uh, uh, including, yes, the the reverence for nature, scaring the kid. We get to see that Grant doesn't really have respect for children. He doesn't want children. We get to see that he and Ellie have this very warm relationship. We meet Dr. Hammond, the uh, philanthrop- philanthropist slash capitalist 
slash we don't really know what he does but make Jurassic Park, uh, but apparently with like insane amount of wealth. Anyway, I'm word vomiting again. The scene where there is a computer scientist there who sends a sonic wave into the dig site and then it brings up a uh, image of the, the, the Velociraptor and there Grant starts talking about it and Grant mentions, I hate computers. And in that scene, he touches the screen and the whole system just goes bonkers. And we get right out of the gate that the hero is a traditionalist and is an anti-technologist. We get already this idea that maybe we're going too fast. You know, the computer scientist says, hey, in a few years, we're never even going to need to dig. And he's just like, well, what's the fun in that? The fun is doing it the old school way. So we already get this looming presence that technology has something that doesn't really jive well. Right. And I think that is a pervasive theme throughout the whole, you know, central theme of the movie and the book that technology can be great, but it also can work against us. Right. It also can be a tool in our evolution that, uh, that serves not only to advance us, but also to create monsters. Uh, yeah. And I'll get, I'll say more about that later for sure. Um, so we've met Hammond and Hammond is a big deal. Uh, he, he arrives in a helicopter and totally disrupts their dig. And it's a really, really invasive moment for them. He comes in and, and represents obviously this capitalist, uh, organization, uh, and he's completely intruding on them. And it's a it's a good introduction for him because it's going to set the tone for, uh, for what some of the characters perceive his inventions and his uh, enterprise to be. Um, so he arrives and he's he's asking for Ellie and Alan to come with him and kind of view his park. And he's very coy about it. He doesn't really say what what's going on there. Um, but he says that they're like the people for the job. He needs them to defend him because he's getting legal analysis. Um, so he bribes them essentially by funding their dig and flies them out to Jurassic Park. Uh, yeah. So what we learn as we get there, of course, we have the grand and exciting moment where they first see dinosaurs that is beautiful and triumphant and has that magical music playing behind it. And it's incredibly seductive for them. They've just met Dr. Ian Malcolm as well. Um, but they see this beautiful sight that they never thought they would see in a million years. And all of a sudden they're overwhelmed with emotion. So our incredibly intellectually based, you know, like intelligence drives everything and reason and logic drive everything are just overloaded with this emotional moment, the thing they've dedicated their lives to that they never in a million years imagined they would see in 65 million years I imagined they would see is standing in front of them. And that's a crazy moment. Yeah. I didn't know if you wanted to take it from no, there because no. I just spoke a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's, it's a great moment. You know, I think that is the moment that was in the trailer where you have Hammond with his, you know, cane going, welcome to Jurassic Park. And you have that shot of, of Grant's face just draw dropped as he's looking at a field of you know, Brontosauruses, Brachiosauruses, herds. And he notices, he goes, they move in herds. They do move like herds. Yeah, um, it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's it, you mentioned the score, John Williams, who scored the movie, I mean, if you want a movie to be epic, you hired John Williams to score it. It was just... Or Hans Zimmer. Or absolutely beautiful, you know? Yeah. I would argue that uh, Total Boomerang, John Williams makes melodies that will just stick and reverberate so much where Hans Zimmer kind of peppers... Yeah, he's a little more atmospheric. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's a bit of a midnight myth boomerang. Anyway, moving on. I asked you to take over because I couldn't remember what the next scene was. Oh, well, so let's flash forward. So a bunch of things happen. We get to what I would consider the intellectual core of the movie. Absolutely. You know, so this is, they see the initial dinosaurs. 
They get an initial glimpse. They see the little uh, explanation. They go on the ride that explains how they clone the dinosaurs. And, you know, actually, I want to say something about that, about the tour when they see the lab Mm -hmm. uh, and they see like the little Mr. DNA dude explaining to them how they made this happen. Um, What what really caught me about that was that Hammond, uh, he not only represents this uh, this version of man who's attempting to harness nature for financial gain to do something that really blows everything out to make a huge profit and to show that he is, he is, uh, he's dominant. Um, but yeah, it's this, it's this moment that we talked about before with creating consciousness with, with robots. That's like playing God. Uh, and I also just want to say very, very quickly, uh, that I think it's, it it just gets to me so much that like what they're doing is taking fossils, like literally fossilized amber and mosquitoes trapped in amber and extracting that from the earth and extracting DNA from the mosquitoes in order to create this huge bunny making machine. And what we do as a society is extract fossils of decomposed dinosaurs and extinct species from the earth to perpetuate our entire society and economy in the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and so I thought that was a really, really perfect little matchup. Totally unintentional on the writer's part, but loved it. Anyway, let's move on to the dinner scene. Well, yeah, great point. I just, before we move into the, the, actually, no, let's go into the dinner scene. So I would consider this to be the, the if, in my opinion, the best scene of the whole movie. At least I as agree. an adult. Yeah. As a kid, you definitely like the dinosaurs the and the action of the dinosaurs is great. And the effects of the dinosaurs great and scene. still look good. So I don't want to take anything away. I would consider this, and you know, I'd be open to discussion that the end of the dinner scene, I'm sorry, the dinner scene, it's a lunch scene. The end of the lunch scene, when they first get to the park before they go on the tour is the end of the first act. Right. You know, that's what I, I would call it. You know, they're now all at the park and now you have in this scene, I'll, I'll lay it out. They're eating Chilean sea bass. Um, I only know that because they mentioned it. First shot of the scene is a camera shot of the sea bass. We're literally looking at them about to eat, uh, you know, a species that has been on the planet for millions of years, yet they don't, not a single character in that scene takes a bite. No one eats a thing, which is interesting, or drinks a thing. So it's a lunch scene where no lunch is consumed. I never noticed that. Really, really interesting. Um, and in that scene, it starts with a shot of that, and we have, I'll lay it out, we have sitting at the head of the table, Hammond. Now, you mentioned him as the guy that represents power and dominance in, in capitalism, which I think is an interesting interpretation, but I don't see him as that. I see him... As a character, you mean? Yeah, you know, but we can get into that analysis, because he is, it starts with him just talking about how they spared no expense, what an amazing park this is, they're going to take the initial ride, which is only the first of planned rides and how excited he is. And then it immediately goes to then the lawyer scene, Gennardo. His job is to make sure the insurance companies will grant insurance licenses. Now, in terms of the business, this is super important. They've already had one death. We saw that death in the beginning. Right, right. If the insurance companies pull the licenses, the investors pull the money, the park closes closes his job is to give a report that the park is safe to the insurance companies. And who does he represent the investors? Right. The reason I dive into the business, which, you know, you get sort of in watching it is that his first reaction is uh, when he sees the dinosaurs in there, we are going to be able to charge what we want. 2000 a day. We're going to make a fortune on this. 10,000 a day. That's not even thinking of merchandising. Then Hammond interrupts him and says, now, 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 this park is for everyone. Hammond, the ultra-rich capitalist, is an egalitarian. He is gifting this park. He doesn't want it just to make money. For him, it's about the legacy of achievement. For him, it's about narcissism. When you're yeah, there al- you go. When you're already a billionaire, you're always going to be a billionaire unless you like are really, really terrible with your money. Right. Even then, I don't think billionaires can ever truly get broke once you get there. For him, it's not about profit. But 
we see an instant naivete when, when Gennardo the Lord goes, oh, of course, we'll have a coupon day. What does Hammond do? Oh, that's great. We'll have a coupon day. Completely being manipulative. His vision of a park for everyone, which he reiterates later in the movie, when all shit is going down, we get the sense that he said, when I first came to Scotland, the first park that I built was a flea park. And in that, I could hear all of the kids going, I can see the fleas, but it was an illusion. So we get a sense that he, the secret to his wealth is he did something originally with amusement parks, his kickoff to business that led to him becoming a billionaire. Right. And they wanted to build something where there wasn't an illusion, you know? And in that scene, which I know I'm flashing forward, Ellie says, um, this is an illusion. You didn't build actually a Jurassic park. It is fake. So I, the reason why I touch on that is that he's so easily manipulative He's not a scientist. He doesn't understand what he's doing, nor does he fully understand the financial implications. In fact, he dismisses the lawyer. I don't care about the lawyer. I don't care about that. I just want to build this because I can build it because I this is great and isn't this cool because I'm rich, but I didn't really earn it, which then we get to uh, Malcolm's argument with Hammond. Yeah, and this is one of my favorite, favorite things in the whole movie. I, I would say Ian Malcolm is one of the best characters in film. He's just, he's brilliant. And I love the arguments that he's made. Of course, he's played by the gold bloom too, with his heaving bosom. Uh, <laughs> God, you see like clips of that moment and you're like, that cannot be, that cannot be real. That can't be from a real movie. It is. Uh, go back, look it up. Yeah. Uh, but Ian Malcolm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I, the only thing before we dive into Malcolm and Hammond's debate, because I think it is the debate of the movie, um, and I think it's the debate in many ways echoing the debates we're having now right. about science, technology, the environment, things like that. Uh, Malcolm, uh, we hear that he is a chaos a chaosatician. He's introduced to them as a mathematician. He goes, no, I'm a chaosatician. We eventually get an explanation of what that means. Now, unless you went to grad school for math, like I never did, you don't know what the fuck that means. So we don't really know what his specialty is at this point. Something to do with math, something to do with chaos. Because it isn't until they're on the tour when he explains in a very rudimentary layman way what it means to study the mathematical principles of chaos. So we don't know his expertise. And I think that's significant because we're not, we're not given the here is what you know. You know dinosaurs. You know law. You know this. He represents this sort of wild factor in this scene. And I think it's exemplified by the fact that he's the only one in glasses. He's wearing all black. He sticks out, right? He's the only one that uh, isn't just sort of sitting there bemused uh, of all the scientists. He's ready to debate one of the richest men in the world over this. Right. And he's he's also not a field academic like Ellie and Alan. He is a, you know, behind closed doors university, academia, a classic thinker. Uh, and, and his, you know, at this point, chaos theory is still relatively new. Today, it's still relatively new as a discipline. So at this point, there are lots of people who don't understand what chaos theory is, which is a mathematical uh, way of understanding the world that, you know, understands and accepts this is obviously a totally a more boiled down version of chaos than than he gives to Ellie, but uh, entering any mathematical problem with the understanding that the tiny variations and variances between uh, different sets of given circumstances are going to provide for huge, huge swings in the uh, accuracy of data that you can get about things, especially in the natural world. So where chaos theory intersects with biology, intersects with, uh, with physics and chemistry is really interesting. Uh, so that's why he's such a cool wild card to have in this group. Right. Cause he, and he is the one that I think right out of the gate sees the glaring hole and problem, uh, intellectually, philosophically, spiritually in Jurassic park. Absolutely. And his, Oh, go for it. Right. And, and I, you know, I'll share a lot of quotes of his in this episode, but uh, he deals with unpredictability in complex systems, and his the essential heart of his argument with Hammond is that life, which Hammond has purported to have created or have subsidized the creation of, life will not be contained. 
life will break free, he says. At this point, we've learned that the, all the dinosaurs are female, so they will not recreate uh, you know, at, at oh, there's, random there's, in the there's park. No, there is no uncontrolled breeding allowed in Jurassic Park. Yeah, so they're all female, uh, so they won't ha, be... Ha, how do you know that? Have you looked up all their skirts? That's my Malcolm impersonation. Sorry, it was terrible. That's great. Um, but yeah, the idea is that because we bred them all as female, they won't be reproducing, so we can have total control over what happens. And then, of course, Malcolm asserts that life finds a way. And we don't really understand, you know, what possibly could allow two female uh, specimens to procreate at this point. But, of course, we'll find out more about that later. But this argument digs deeper into uh, the idea of dominance over the natural world uh, and dominance over something that Malcolm believes human beings do not have control over. He says something, he kind of throws this line away. He says, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here staggers me. It's the first line when they're talking about the money and the coupon day that he just can't contain himself. And he says it and he says it, he acts it and he acts it very quietly. He says that and uh, instantly the lawyer wants to interrupt him and be like, we haven't seen the park yet. You know, we got to do this and blah, blah, blah. Like, like, cause the lawyer knows the insurance company like the behind the scenes part is the insurance company wants Malcolm to sign off on the park. Cause if they can get a chaos attition to say it's safe, they'll feel more comfortable insuring it. Right. So Someone as soon who as understands micro variances that could lead to big risks. Exactly. Details. He'd be the perfect one. And because he shows skepticism, Gennardo immediately wants to debate him and Hammond says, no, I want to hear his perspective. You know, uh, I want to, I brought him here to hear every idea. Another Example, he's not the cutthroat capitalist. He wants to actually hear different perspectives. So Malcolm then lays out the argument that they didn't uh, take enough time, enough reverence. His argument is that it took no discipline for them to attain the genetic knowledge. They, in fact, took genetic knowledge from other scientists, added you know, some mining and wealth on top of it, found some dinosaur DNA, found a way to do it, and just did it. And they take no responsibility. And they then, stood on the shoulders of geniuses and took no responsibility. And then as soon as they, you know, had this awesome power to recreate a species that had been extinct for tens of millions of years, what did they do? They decided to turn it into an amusement park. And he, he actually slams his fist on the table and goes, you're selling it. Bash, you're selling it. Bash, you know, in, in his rage and his anger. And then Hammond tries to counter-argue. And he says, he makes an argument about condors and saying condors are going extinct. And if he were to be cloning condors on this island, that, you know, you know, Dr. Malcolm would have no problem with the scientific prowess. Right, because obviously he's doing a service to the world and, and to that species and the ecosystem. And this is where I think Malcolm, his response, it exposes that he is not anti-technology, he of is course not, not. anti-discovery or cloning or using the tools of science to make the world better. He says, this is not a species that's dying because of deforestation or the building of a dam. You know, dinosaurs had their shot and nature selected them for extinction. Meaning that, you know, once we have seen nature make the distinction to, to, to cut off a species, now we're in the next phase of not just human evolution of, of earth's evolution. Right. And this is the first time we hear a character explicitly, uh, you know, almost get on their knees before the might and the power of nature, understanding that this is not, this is not a world that we inherited that is given to us to have dominion over. This is spaceship earth. This is what we are traveling on. And it is, you know, I'll go back to pagan, you know, ancient uh, philosophies and mythologies. This is the mother. This thing created us and this thing sustains us. And we talk about the universal myth. We talk about the universal story. There's almost nothing more universal than the mother goddess, mother nature. And, and here was Hammond being like, mother nature, fuck you. 
And then I think Malcolm says something really, really powerful in the next moment when he calls what Hammond's doing a violent, penetrative act. He calls it the rape of the natural world. Yeah. And this is a moment where we think of Mother Nature again. And it reminded me, uh, right now I'm reading a book by Naomi Klein called um, This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. Uh, it's a really excellent book about uh, the conditions of uh the global economy that has uh, that have really set up the the case for climate change denialism uh, and perpetuated the extractivist economies that we live in, and she goes all the way back to uh, uh, Francis Bacon, the English philosopher of the seventeenth century, and so he was very concerned with uh, philosophy and the emergence of science and the scientific method, uh, and he he has a really interesting quote that she expands on in the book, where uh, where she says. He's credited with convincing Britain's elites to abandon once and for all pagan notions of the earth as a life-giving mother figure to whom we owe respect and reverence and more than a little fear and accept her, accept the role as her dungeon master. Quote, for you have but to follow and as it were hound nature in her wandering. Bacon wrote in uh, the Scientarium in 1623, Quote, and you will be able, when you like, to lead and drive her afterwards to the same place again. Neither ought a man to make scruple of entering and penetrating into these holes and corners when the inquisition of truth is his sole object. And I think... Wow. Yeah, does that hurt a little bit to and hear? And that is, that is Jurassic Park to a T. Isn't it? And what you hear there is... I think what I was speaking about at the beginning of the episode, uh, the the changing of the narrative, and not just the narrative in storytelling as we think of it, but the narrative in uh, philosophy and the narrative in politics and economics. Uh, let's change this. Let's put it to bed. Let's let's change this idea that the earth is our mother, and turn the earth into something that we own. I'm thinking about Pocahontas now. Right. And if you look at it from the perspective, Hammond, the successful capitalist turned philanthropist turned, uh, you know, you know, guy that wants to fund paleontologists and learn more about dinosaurs. He didn't want to just make the earth his possession. He wanted to make her evolutionary history also his. Right. He wanted to own all of that. And I would submit not for profit, but just because he fucking could. And this is where we become, this is where we uh, take on the mantle of being the God species. This is, it, it just clearly portrayed. And Hammond in, in the movie, in the books, it's different. In the, in the books, he's a fucking piece of shit. In the movie, you're like, I kind of see my grandfather a little in him. Is Santa. Yeah, he is really pleasant and nice and polite and outgoing, and you like see, him. That's why I see so much sinister uh, nature to him, too, because he's so warm and fuzzy on the outside that I'm like, ugh. Listen, when the park goes down, the first thing he says is, get my grandchildren. When the Right, but I, I feel like that's kind of a shift for his character. But go on, go on, go on. No, I think the, the you know, the, the end of the, back to the, the lunch scene, the end of the lunch scene is him standing up almost ominously, ominously, darkly standing up and going, they're here. And it ends lunch. And who is it? It's his fucking grandkids. Yeah, it's his grandkids. Who just run and hug him. He's so human. It's important for him to have that weakness because that's going to be a very important thing later when he makes some really, really important decisions. He is a tragic hero. He wanted to give something back to the world that he thought would be beautiful, that would inspire them. And he exploits science. He exploits capitalism and then exploits our own natural history to do it. And because of that, he pays and makes other pay a really high, horrible price. You know, it's it's Gennardo, the, the blood-sucking capitalist. I think Gennardo is called by Hammond, the blood-sucking lawyer. Right. He's the first one to just get destroyed. 
you know, because he's the character that we, none of us, he's, he's, there's nothing heroic about him. Nobody likes him. He gets eaten as soon as the dinosaurs become loose. Yeah. And we, we spoke about this before, uh, how he, he comes into this with no actual loyalties or stakes in this, except for his own self-interest. And representing Uh, the self-interest of others. Yeah. And just reminds me so much of policymakers and, and lobbyists and just, it it really, he's the lobbyist. Oh, I think he's, I think he's the bought off politician. I think the lobbyist is Hammond. That's what I see when I look at him. I see a spin doctor. Hmm. And so that's why I have a hard time really seeing him in the first half of the movie as warm and grandfatherly. I, I see it as a shift when he starts to put others ahead of his own you don't narcissism. See, you don't see... All right. I'm not saying I don't see it. I'm saying I read it as not genuine. But that's just a difference in the way that we read it. I mean, whether it's genuine or not... But that makes his ultimate turn a little more powerful for me. I, well, I See, I don't see it as a turn. Whether it's genuine or not, like Steel, Spielberg made the conscious choice of changing oh, Hammond yeah. from the book. And Absolutely. Hammond, Hammond from the book is a ruthless capitalist that cares about no one. Right. And he actually ends up getting eaten alive by dinosaurs in the book. You know, they changed him in the movie to make him more warm and fuzzy and grandfathery. But I think that adds a leather, a layer of complexity to uh, the, the, the entire narrative yeah. that his motivation isn't just for personal gain uh, financially, there's certainly, you know, the lack of humility is what, uh, um, Malcolm calls it in that, in the lunch scene, that lack of humility is John's John Hammond. That's his name, his narcissism. So he is a narcissist. He is self-obsessed. He is absolutely responsible, but it's not all from an evil place. No, sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, Moving on. Yeah, where are we going next? Yeah, so... (laughs) I lost my train of thought. As we're talking about the God species and we're talking about the rape of the natural world and Malcolm's argument against uh, Jurassic Park, I think we would be remiss if we didn't uh, rewind in time a little bit. Uh, Rewind? Rewind uh, to a lady named Mary Shelley and the prototypical man versus nature uh, man lacking humility before nature story, uh, Frankenstein. And I think Frankenstein I, exemplifies what I was speaking about before uh, when I talked about the evolution of the man versus nature conflict. Uh, and I think it, it really stands out in that, in that context because as we see the technological evolution of man, we see industrial revolution, we see uh, new advancements in science, uh, we begin to see new fears uh, on the part of humanity. And so our stories take on those new fears. So our our fear is no longer that nature will come up and destroy us. Our fear is more introspective. It's about, hey, we have touched something now, like Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. We have stolen something because we've been able to create amazing technological advancements in our world, what if we went too far and the earth fought back and nature fought back because we defied its laws? And I think that Frankenstein exemplifies that narrative and paves the way for stories like Jurassic Park. What I think is fascinating is that because our societies are evolving and advancing with such an acceleration, uh, that fear is still incredibly present. It's still so, so powerful to us to see, you know, if we go back to Hal, to see the the fears of AI. Uh, you know, we you mean Hal 9000? Hal 9000. 2001 Space yeah, Odyssey. All right. Yeah, but yeah. like that still resonates as does Ex Machina and stories about us creating a spark of something that would fight back because we broke the laws of nature. So I think it's really interesting to track that evolution of uh, the man versus nature conflict into a more, more of a fear of what's inside of ourselves than a fear of what's outside. Well, Malcolm says in the, 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 the lunch scene, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they never stopped and thinked and thought if they should. Which we mentioned in the Don't Disconnect Me episode, because that fear 
is right there. We can touch it in so many different stories. And I think the argument that Michael Crichton and Spielberg are making through the character Malcolm is that achievement for the sake of achievement is no achievement. And rather that if you can do something great and powerful and amazing, but yet it doesn't come from a place of a higher intellectual, moral, or spiritual involvement and advancement, if there's no philosophy to your action, um, but you do it just because you say you can, it, it is in and of itself going to defeat itself. It's, In other words, it's naturally self-defeative. And Jurassic Park is the example of the implosion. So I would also argue, as we look at Jurassic Park as a a story of man versus nature because animals are attacking man the entire time. It's not actually a story of man versus nature. The dinosaurs aren't natural. They're man-made. It is a story of man versus man, man versus himself. The thing that you create that subverts nature and the laws of nature overriding the laws of man coming back and then having to face those consequences and dealing with achievement for achievement and not achievement for a higher purpose. I think that's a really amazing point. Uh, and I would, you know, we've, we've done a little bit of a circle here, but I would come back around and say that when we realize, of course, that the, the dinosaurs have been bred with some frog DNA and that some amphibians, as uh, Dr. Grant informs us, uh, have been known in certain situations in like all, um, all one gender societies have been known to spontaneously switch gender to, uh, perpetuate the species. Some crazy Darwinian, uh, evolutionary, uh, you know, adaptation. Uh, so once we learn that, that life found a way, I think that's the moment where we have to we have to get back on our knees and realize that we 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 may have created these things, humankind may have created these problems, but it's not it's not in our hands anymore. We're not in the driver's seat because nature is unpredictable and nature is more powerful than us and the earth will turn back on us if we push it too far. And if you create dinosaurs and think you can control their breeding, you can't. And if you think that you can spend, you know, two centuries pumping carbon into the atmosphere, uh, you know, without any consequences and you think that's okay, well, guess what? That's not. And you can't. I think that is where we look at our, our modern discourse dealing with the global warming, where I think Jurassic Park resonates and has a, a, I won't say direct parallel, because as uh, we learned in researching this podcast, Michael Crichton didn't believe in global warming. Michael Crichton was a famous climate change denier who wrote books and gave speeches, encouraging people to approach the problem with more skepticism. Right. And um, I wonder if you were alive today, if you would still agree with that. But um, but we know that Jurassic Park wasn't written about global warming, but it's interesting looking at the problems that we're dealing with in a Jurassic Parkian way. Right. And it's it's interesting to project those ideas on a story that impacts us universally uh, when dealing with a problem that impacts us universally. And I think one of the things that I learned from re-watching Jurassic Park, and this is a valuable lesson for how to continue to live our lives in accordance with a way that will sustain our existence, is that the man versus nature concept is inherently flawed. I think that the goal, which is understood by Ian Malcolm, which is understood by Ellie, which is understood by Alan, uh, should be to cultivate a sustainable relationship with the earth and all its inhabitants. The goal should not be to pit ourselves against the elements, to pit ourselves against nature, uh, because it's not a villain created us. It sustained us. It is our mother. And it's only when we estimate our control 
over our environment that we see these disastrous consequences. We drill so far into the earth and we deplete so many natural resources and pump so much carbon into the air that we melt our polar ice caps and we acidify our oceans. And New York might be underwater in 10 years. And we're seeing the dissolution of the Great Barrier Reef and species dying out. And Cairo and Norway logging the same temperature on a certain day. That's absurd. Yeah. And maybe that's yeah, the totally consequence. Absurd. And maybe the consequence is a T-Rex getting out and trying to kill people and succeeding. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well said. I had that. That feels like a final thought. Should we end on that and go to the game? I had. I have one more thing I want to say. Why I don't had, you go first? I had one more thing. I wanted to flash forward because a big theme of Jurassic Park, flash forward in the, the movie, that is, big theme of the park is systems and controlling systems, ecological Great. systems, technological systems, intellectual systems. So Hammond controls the, the, the gig, the, the dig the, the, um, of Grant because he can control it because he is rich. Um, and then there's the character, Dennis Nedry, who controls the technological systems. I thought we were going to get out of this without talking about Newman, but here we go. Ah, Newman. Uh, the character who played Newman in Seinfeld plays Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park, and he shuts the park down because he wants to smuggle the embryos to a competitor of Hammond's um, in order to make a huge sum of money. In doing so they come up with this idea of how can we get the systems back online? The ranking second in command computer scientist is played by Samuel L. Jackson. And he has the idea of rebooting the whole park, shutting down all systems and restarting it. The old thing in it, the old adage, what do you do with a system that's failing? Did you turn it off and turn it back on again? Oof. And in a way, this is a metaphor to me, because how does nature correct its mistakes? Well, it turns it off and turns it back on again. You know, the dinosaurs were extinct. They were turned off and it turned life back on again in right. the form of the rise of mammals and the grazing animals that had millions of years to rule the earth, which they died out and gave rise to man. Right. And man got to rule the earth, you know, um, metaphorically speaking. And now they're in the, this, this chaotic system that's like collapsing in on itself. And what does he say? We have to shut the system down and turn it back on. We have to symbolically reinvent everything to purge the mistakes. Right. And there's this great line where they say, like, where the, the computer scientist says, we shut it back. It may not come back on at all. Yeah. And that... That seems like a simple line about the electricity in the park, but it's a really, really deep and powerful line about uh, about everything that's at stake, about immediately the lives of the, the people who were lost in the park, the grandchildren. Uh, and also it reminds me, it reminds me a little bit of the reason that we as humans are so hesitant to move forward with uh, policies that would allow for us to recoup some of the damage that we've done to the earth in the last, you know, couple of centuries, because in order to do that, we have to make some serious changes to our economic system, to our global economic system. We have to shut a lot of shit down. You know, we have to increase government regulation on industry and we have to change the fundamental way that capitalism works globally in order to make these changes. But the fear is, if we shut that shit down, what if it doesn't come back on at all? It might not. Right. And What if there, everything falls apart? In the movie, there's an incredible cost to shutting it down. Turning it off was easy. Right. They flip a few switches, they type some computer code, the system goes offline. Mm -hmm. The entire like third act shitstorm is about turning the system back on. You know, we have uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character goes to turn it back on. He never comes back. Right. Ellie goes uh, with the head of security. I forget his name, um, you know, in the, the character and the actor. Um, he goes, he gets killed by raptors. Ellie finally is able to turn the system back on, and it's slowly starting to reboot. 
and she finds that Samuel L. Jackson character's dead. The Raptors are now loose. An entire new enemy comes out of this. The Raptors, the most cunning enemy of all the dinosaurs, right. starts hunting them. So the cost of shutting the On system their down own turf too. They in, infiltrate in the, the labs and the like man-made sp- spaces, the kitchens, everything. And and so to me, there is a warning that shutting the whole system down is painful. Right. It won't just it won't happen There's without a, lot a fight. At stake. You can't just turn it back on and expect there to be no results, no negative uh, outcomes. Um, and it takes what does it take to get the system back online fully? It takes the whimsy and intellectual prowess of a fearless child in the character Lex. Yeah, she's awesome. She's the only one. I now I think that moment in the film symbolically is great. And it's not the greatest writing and directing where she's just like, Ooh, I know this system. It's, it's Unix. Unix system. Yeah. It's like, great. You know, Unix, you understand Unix directories. The it's a touch generation screen. has to save us from the older generation's mistakes. Though, does that I'll, sound like anything? It does actually, but I will give it credit that, that she didn't go like, let's reroute the encryptions to make sure that the spyware is no longer on the activeware. Yeah. It is better than that crap. Yeah, you know, Unix is an actual way that you can build a technological system. Uh, if you use any Apple products, you know that already because they all run on Unix. Anyway, I digress. Um, but that symbolic act of, of the child being able to fix it, being able to understand how to work this system once it's shut down, and the only one in the whole park who can, and the crucial moment get the doors back online to save everyone's lives is a child. That's so beautiful and amazing. It means that to me, there is hope, you know, and there is a Lex out there who's going to see something that the adults missed and be able to get the system back online so we can keep the Raptors at bay. Government regulation. That's all we need. Uh, so I had two more things that I wanted to say really quickly. Um, we, we know uh, that there are sequels to this movie. We don't like to think about it. Um, and so I don't want to bring too much attention to the sequels uh, because the movie really is perfect and holds up really, really well. But the, uh, the never-ending reboots of this franchise, I think, are, are at once a, a comment on and a product of the same capitalist formulas that keep us perpetuating extractivist policies, clear-cutting rainforests, wiping out existing species, and, of course, making shitty movies. Like, we we keep seeing the same trailers for Fast and Furious 8 or whatever continuing and continuing because we're stuck in the same kind of uh, profit-first motivated system Ooh, that, that got stops heavy. us from innovating even when the innovation is a lot easier than you might think. So let me ask you this to make sure I understand, because I think I understand, and I thought that was beautifully well said. You're not saying that the endless reboots of Jurassic Park are causing the problems that we're facing in society today, but are emblematic of them. Yep. Okay. And that we will continue to do the same thing over and over again, even though it won't produce a different result, and we end up going home with full bellies and content thinking that something great has just happened when it's been the same thing. And I think to narrow it down even further to go into a studio and say, let's create a sequel or a reboot of Jurassic park because we know it'll make us a lot of money would be so frowned upon by Ian Malcolm and Ellie and Alan. I think they would be like, you, you were so concerned with whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think of whether or not you should. Interesting how all of those actors are in Lost World, the sequel. I haven't seen it. Yeah, but, you know, we mentioned this, we touched upon this in our episode about The Matrix. Um, You know, and I get that film and TV are businesses and that they want to make money. And if you do it well, I want you to be profitable. But I do think when it comes to the raw motives of we can recreate the experience of Jurassic Park, call it Jurassic World. And sh- have no heart to it whatsoever. Well, and strip it of any pretense of intellectualism 
Right. Or any... Or feminism. Or any, yeah. A any pretense of equality of the sexes. Any idea, like, let's, let's remove any layers that we can peel apart to fully look at. So we can do an entire hour-long hour podcast about Jurassic Park the movie and not even touch its innovation in technology, what it did for filmmaking. Right, come on. Not even touch its blend of CGI and practical effects. Not even touch the acting and uh, prowess of actors like Jeff Goldblum. And, and one of the best female characters in popular culture. Yeah, and, and not even discuss those and simply talk about the intellectual and moral arguments that it made says something about the blockbusters that were versus the blockbusters that are. Now, to be fair, Hollywood has always made popcorn big movies for us to consume, to consume, and to just, you know, like a good piece of cake, eat about it, talk about it the next morning about how good it was, and then never remember it again. You know, Hollywood will always make those movies, but do you have to keep prepackaging the same thing? You know, and I feel like I've gotten on this rant before, so I don't want to get too deep right, into we it. We do talk about this every week. You know, but um, it's okay to think, I want a movie with dinosaurs and make it not Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, The yeah. Lost World. It's okay to do, come up with an original story. Do something new with dinosaurs. I'll fucking see it. I'll see it. I absolutely will go see. There's a movie with dinosaurs. They should make a new Dinotopia movie. <gasps> and with that, we should move to you the just game. Broke Laurel. I just wanted to say one last final thing. And with and that, that's we should that, go to the final thing. And then that's the that, game. Dear Michael Crichton, I know that you didn't intend for your book to be a climate change metaphor because you didn't believe in climate change. Well, I just wanted to let you know that the strength of your story and Steven Spielberg's story uh, was so important to me that I was able to put a climate change narrative on top of it. Fuck you. Game. Game. Uh, do your thing, Laurel. Cool. So every week here on the Midnight Myth Podcast, after I curse out a very famous author and speak ill of the dead, uh, we like to play a little game to have fun with some of the characters and situations we've been getting down and dirty with. Uh, and we would love for you to play along at home if you like. So please tweet us your responses at The Midnight Myth on Twitter or look us up on Facebook to search The Midnight Myth Podcast or drop us a line on the website. There's a contact form there, www.midnightmyth.com. Let's play a game. What's and, the game, Derek? And just, you know, just to, before we go into what the game actually is, uh, I think from our analytics, we do have listeners. I think we do. I think people are out there listening. I do. Um, play the fucking game with us, guys. Okay. You know? Like, be nice. No, no, no. I'm not being nice. I'm going to be the Tyrannosaurus Rex. We do these games every week because we want to hear from you. Let's hear from you. That's why we do it, to awesome. engage with you. Here's the game. So you are designing the theme park of all theme parks. A theme park to rule them all, if you will. Um, it can't be dinosaur like Jurassic Park. You can't clone dinosaurs because we know that will not work. A lot of movies have proven it. So the question is, what is your ultimate ride at your dream theme park? To clarify, do I have the biotechnology of Hammond and Jurassic Park? I just can't do dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, well, we can't do dinosaurs because we know they'll eat us. Right, right, right. But and I don't want to keep it interesting. Any other limitations? So I'm assuming I have biotech. You have biotech. If, you can have magic if you want. I don't care. And I have magic. You have biotech and magic. Yeah, sure. Why and not? hyperspace. Yeah. All right, I'm going first. Do it. Deep sea diving with mermaids. So my major theme park attraction allows you to breathe underwater and wear a mermaid tail and go deep sea diving with actual mermaids into their mermaid pearl castle and explore the depths of the actual ocean in like a, you know, a very safe biosphere or uh, you know, just like a little dome where you would be safe from predators and whatever, but you'd get to actually interact with uh, safe ocean creatures and there would be actors who are, uh, not actors, but like geo-engineered mermaids that actually live down there and have a society and you could have like a mermaid meal and hang out with the princesses and 
uh, Sebastian the crab. I was going to say, can you get a bunch of crustaceans to sing a Calypso song? Well, there would obviously be a hot crustacean band. That's amazing. Yeah. I would fucking give you all of my 401k I to know, go there. Me too. That is such a great idea to actually, and you know what? My, you know, it's funny. I was hanging out with my niece. She just turned six. And you know what she said? She's like, let's play mermaids. It's because I always play mermaids with her and it's a really fun game. Oh, really? You know, I usually pretend I'm a sailor, then I harpoon her. Wow. That got dark. It's a fun game. She actually really likes it. All right. I want to know your response now. All right. So uh, I think I've mentioned this a few times. If you're new to the show, I'm a history buff. So if I could create any kind of theme park ever, um, I would have a time travel into the past theme park. Yeah. So you could go, you could pick the era of history that you wanted to see, and you could go back in time and you could see that era of history. So you could like be like any era. You could be like, I want to see ancient Mesoamerica before Cortez, for example. And you go back in time, you get a tour guide that it and that kind of travels around with you, shows you the area. And it has this sort of like TARDIS reality distortion field where the other people that are there don't notice that you're there. They don't interact with you, but you're like on the ground with them. So you could say, I want to see the construction of the Great Wall of China. I want to see, um, you know, Augustus after the Battle of Actium, where he became the emperor of Rome and see the first emperor of Rome's parade back into Rome. Um, like you could pick wherever, whatever you wanted, and you could go back in time and see an era of history. I want to see the Gettysburg Address. So I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Is this, are, are we assuming that you have an actual time machine? Yes. Okay, because I was wondering if it was just like infinite levels of like geoengineered or like, Westworld style bots just walking around and populating this area or uh, if it was virtual reality yeah. um, or if it was an actual time machine. No, it's an actual time That's machine. That's good. That sounds less pricey than the other two options. However, you can't in, in this like world I'm envisioning, you can't go into the future. I don't know why. That's just how I envision okay, it. Okay, sure. You can only go see things in the past. So you just invented time machine and then charge people admission. Uh, well, you have to have a reality distortion field. That too, yeah. You know? That's so the important you, you've got to part. invent that too. Because you don't want a butterfly effect. Yeah, you don't want a butterfly effect. You don't want to go back to see Lincoln and be like, oh, I'm at the Gettysburg Address. And oh, he's somehow, going to the theater. Let's hang out. Oh, I just stopped him from getting assassinated yeah. and changed all American history. And then you like come back to the future and somehow like some crazy reality TV star is president. Yeah, yeah. That would be just fucking terrible. Imagine if reality TV stars, TV stars, that's not a word, TV show. Anyway, <sighs> until next time, guys. Be kind. Uh, one more thing. One more thing. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Be kind. Be kind.